0: ugh i'm forgetting everything um somewhere back there you heard output message with Somail, also from the idol Trout two album before that a mega mix with finez and the beach boys playing at the same time um Finesse doing cecilia beach boys doing god only knows and starting off our set was captain beefheart and his magic band with dachau blues and ella guru trout mask rap the thanks for listening
1: to wcbn i'm carlo fish and i'm out of here
0: Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, uh, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show. And I'm sitting here today um, feeling very lucky uh, with the, the lovely and talented writer, uh, Michael Byers. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Hi, T.
1: <laughs> I'm feeling very lucky, too, sitting across from you. Also <laughs> lovely. Also talented.
0: Oh, thank you. Go on, go on.
1: <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> Oh no, wait, this is your show.
0: <laughs> That's right. No, we're here to talk about you. Um, so uh, just as a brief interu- uh, introduction, uh, Michael Byers is is here in Ann Arbor as an associate professor uh, at the University of Michigan. He's uh, a, a wonderful writer. He's got a collection of short stories that are critically acclaimed, The Coast of Good Intentions, and his novel that came out in 2003, Long for This World. He's currently working on many new projects, and maybe by the end of the hour, or the 45 minutes, rather, we'll get to hear a little bit more about um, his current obsessions. Um, he's an award winner, this guy, Michael Byers. Uh, he's, he's got the Whiting Prize under his belt, and uh, the Academy of Arts and Lectures Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction as well for the short story collection. Um, so we're very lucky to have him here today. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we started off with a little a little number yes um, we did can we can you tell us a little bit about the the reason for the, the song, song choice
1: dusty springfield great Dust- song perhaps one of the best songs ever sung um i don't know much about music and maybe we'll talk about that later but anyway i do know this song because i happen to love this song and i think the the first time i came to love this song was when it was in the dr pepper commercial do you remember this? Do you remember the Dr. Pepper commercial? Yes. And it just seemed really like a cool song to know. So,
0: What year was that, would you say? That
1: was 1990 or something, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. You were a youngin'. I, I, oh, no, nah, not that. Well, <clears throat> so heard, this, heard the song, loved it. And then, well, but the reason you played it was, was because that was my karaoke debut. Uh, Dusty Springfield. And where was that? Where did that take place? That was was right here, man. And that was just a few, what, months ago when Jeffrey Eugenides was in town. And I bet he was down here, too, talking into maybe even this very hallowed microphone. That's right. he was a great guy. And so he wanted to go out. It was after his lecture. And then there was a big dinner. And then we were out. And then he wanted to keep going out. And so somebody, I think this happens, although I usually go home before this happens, Somebody said, let's go do karaoke. So I went and we all went and there we were. And this was, it, it's above, what is it called? Circus? Something like this? That's right. Okay. It's the circus. All right. So it's down, what, above the blind pig? down Yeah, right by the blind pig okay. there on so, first.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so we <laughs> Little went. Little ad there right. for the circus <clears> Monday <throat> nights. Go. Now,
1: uh, <laughs> this was the smokiest room i'd ever been in including in buildings that have been on fire (laughs) okay i mean this was this was a really smoky place and 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 so i couldn't first of all it affected my throat which affected my singing i will i will say
0: well it was a very throaty throaty song
1: yeah eugenity said it i sounded what like uh like william shatner singing in his version of 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 uh of um lucy in the sky with diamonds which is a, you know, one of my favorite singing performances of all time. I don't know if that's around anywhere. But um yeah, so I, I, I tended I guess to be more of a spoken word artist on this night up there. But I do I, I will say for myself, I was not nervous and I was not drunk. So I got up there and I just sung sober and had a darn good time.
0: That's right, children. You can See, do that. <laughs> you
1: can do it. It's possible. And it was and then I got I got home and it was so late. And I smelled so bad that um, when I walked in the door, uh, I went upstairs and my wife woke up because of the smell. The cigarette smell. It was so bad. So I'm not allowed to go there any, your wife, anymore. Your I'd wife, spin, the poet, it, Susan. It, Susan Hutton has now disallowed my presence. Unless I shower after. And that's okay.
0: Well, that's good. let's say Yeah. That's a, yeah. So. More showers.
1: Fun. Look, I like singing. I you do. were great. I was impressed. See? Thank you. I was impressed. Thank you. I called William Shatner afterwards. And he said he said, come along, we'll do a thing together. We'll go on the road.
0: So on for the next book tour, William Shatner will be opening for you and then you you both will I'm, do uh,
1: I'm, I'm ghostwriting his new memoir, which is called Yes, This Is My Hair.
0: That's wonderful. Well um well let's talk about writing. Is this is your debut performance of karaoke going to be making it into one of your yeah, are you writing any short stories now, or what? what I am. I'm
1: writing. I'm writing a bunch of different things. Primarily, I'm working on a novel, um, and in the middle of and in in the process of writing that one, also writes a bunch of other stuff. I'm writing mm-hmm. a few short stories, and I have just finished, I think, a novella, um, and some nonfiction as well. So I'm kind of um, all over the place, I suppose, at the moment. Is Primarily, it, though, the novel is, is
0: happening is that oh, okay is that normal for you then to have many multiple things what is what's a day in the life of writer michael Byers
1: well um day in the life I, uh it, it sort of depends on what the teaching schedule is because I teach up here at the u of m and so my days are are shaped um kind of by the outside obligations that I have, like a lot of people. Um, but what I try to do is try to get at least a paragraph or a page or so every day, and often I fall fall sh- uh, fall far short of that. Um, but um, I tell, <laughs> when I'm in the graduate writing workshop, for example, I tell, um, tell the cohort around the table that it's important at least just to open the file and look at what you're working on every day so that it doesn't become something alien to you so that you can, so it doesn't feel like it's some kind of, um, oh... Uh, some project that has nothing to do with you, or that you you had been working on before. You you want you want to kind of maintain a continuous um, uh, interaction with with what you're working on. So so right. this is what I try to do, and it just depends on how much time I get. On a good day, you know, I can work for eight hours and get a lot done, and uh, on other days, you work for eight minutes. So um, it's kind of what I can get.
0: Right, right. And I have
1: family and kids and and other obligations and i have to mow the lawn now although i'm thinking of putting, that spring put, yeah i'm thinking of just putting in a, a great big toupee out there sort of a grass toupee so i don't have to cut it anymore william actually shatner told me about that
0: it's all about the hair yeah yeah even if it's on your lawn mm-hmm. you know you can do that you can buy a lawn covering yeah you like, think fake i'm kidding lawn. no you, i you, believe no, we, you i just don't know if all our listeners are aware of the fake lawn
1: I do. I, I, I know about it. There and also I kinda like the thing where you paint your concrete green. Have you seen this? This is great because it's sort of it's it's the it's the worst because you think you're fooling people. Like if somebody is flying over in a in a piper cub, maybe they'll look down on on your lawn and think, What a nice What a
0: place for croquet beautiful
1: green lawn and then they get to your house and they realise no, it's just it's a it's a parking lot that you painted green. I think I don't know. I think it's very strange, but 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 I'm thinking about it.
0: And it's green. It's very so green. so would you say that's what your politics are like?
1: <laughs> they look green from far away. When you get up close, they're just uh, urban and uh, yeah, hard. That's me.
0: That's, no. <laughs> Don't believe you. Well, um, so so you d- you came here, Michael, for your for your MFA. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about. Tell us your story.
1: My story is um kind of always w- wrote as a kid even as a very young kid was always kind of writing and interested in story and so on and had some pretty good teachers in high school who who at least didn't discourage me. Mm-hmm. Um same thing with my family. And then I went to college and was a creative writing major, which was admittedly not the most strenuous major you could <laughs> undertake, but um but I worked I worked at it. And then um, after that, uh, after I graduated from college, I uh, took two years off, and I did well. I I did teach for America for two years. So I taught elementary school, taught third grade, and then I taught sixth grade.
0: Where did you do the teaching?
1: That was in rural southern Louisiana, mm. um, yeah, uh, and quite an experience. And
0: and you moved from Seattle. That's where you grew up. I in moved Seattle, from Seattle, Washington. went
1: to Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, and then from there went to uh, went to Louisiana for a couple of years. Then uh, took a year off. After that, save having saved you know, a few dollars teaching. Um, and I thought you were
0: going to say saved many children's lives you know, and given saved, them the gift of words. Yeah.
1: I, I was actually, I was, I was an amazingly bad elementary school teacher. I was really bad. And I kind of knew it at the time also. And <laughs> it, it, uh, it struck me um, as I was kind of about three months in that that this was really not the job for me because it, it required it required me to be it, it what what an elementary you have to have your soul kind of on the outside of your body mm. you have to be vulnerable and open and ready and available for everybody all the time in the classroom and then you take it home and and particularly for this population they were you know terribly underserved and in in need of so much and man i just wanted to be writing and so i was miserable and made their lives miserable so I decided that a career as a third grade teacher, I was not going to be Mr. Byers down the hall with the like the AV cart. That was not me. So um, I kind of bummed around for a year living off my savings and then applied to graduate school to, and um, uh, went here uh, to get my MFA. That was in 94 to 96.
0: And how'd you get the word on on that? Who,
1: um, When... Um, uh, when I was applying here, I knew Charlie Baxter was teaching here. And so that was very much of a draw, uh, of, of course. And, um, I was living at the time in a, in my granddad's, uh, old, um, beach cabin on the coast of Washington, which sounds beautiful. I know it sounds gorgeous. And my granddad, who was a really paranoid guy had built it as a bomb shelter, as a fallout shelter. <laughs> so it was not beautiful. Um, it was kind of up on stilts, so it wouldn't get washed away by the by the terrible tides that would follow a nuclear, you know, ca- Holocaust. And when you opened the 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 cabinets, there were these jars and cans of like old, um, mandarin orange slices and clams and stuff. It you know, like. Do you
0: have any pictures of this?
1: Yeah, uh, no, I, I don't. But but it, it was as though, you know, the worst thing that he could think of. In, in you know and post nuclear fallout situation was like what if you got scurvy? What what if you got scurvy and and you couldn't you couldn't walk anymore because you got rickets and you know so he had a lot of vit he had vitamin C. He was a sad kind of strange guy. But anyway, so I was living there, carpenter ants were eating the middles of the doors. It was just you know, it was not beautiful. And then the phone rings. The phone rings in this horrible right, right. kind of windswept January a landscape. It's
0: almost like weathering heights, too. Your own version.
1: Yeah, almost. <laughs>
0: and
1: and it's Charlie Baxter on the other end of the line. Oh, I know you're Heathcliff. Um, and he's Charlie, <laughs> and I don't know how that goes together, but but he calls and there he is, and and he says, Michael, I want you to come come to Michigan, and I say, yes, of course, of course, I'm going to come, so I came, and and then I was here for two years, and then um. Met my wife, and we went to California to do Stegner fellowships, and then moved back to Seattle for five years, and then um, kind of got on the job market at that point, and taught at Pitt, and now I'm here.
0: Oh, but and um, going back a little bit, a little bit of rewinding there. So Charlie Baxter was one of one of your big influences yes. as you were, um, very much reading and, and, widely, and, and
1: exactly. And and I remember, in fact, very vividly sitting in. The kind of um living room dining room of, of the house that we rented in 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 louisiana um as a as a as i was as I was teaching and reading uh, Charlie's story Griffin mm. about um you know the crazy substitute teacher who comes in and i love that story it's a beautiful story and reading that and thinking boy that's really what a story should be and um you know feeling it very much as here's the um Here's here's what you get to do if you get to be a writer. You 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 get to you get to create these people and to produce these these mystical half-seen understandings. And and this is what I felt I wanted to get to at some point. This is what I felt um was important to write about and to see. Um and so reading that story in that place at that time was particularly important to me. Also the story that disappeared, I think was around at that time and Saul and Patsy were pregnant um mm. was was out then. Um and yeah, Charlie was Charlie was and remains uh, a a big draw and a big influence.
0: Well, well, thank you. on on that On that note, I think we're going to take a break. We'll go to a break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. Um, my name is T Hetzel, and today I'm speaking with Michael Byers.
1: You get, you get away from me You get away from me Cool, I got my balloon and I left the jail Well, thanks for the time I needed to think It's best I had to think a why I had to think of
0: You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Today we have Michael Byers with us here in the studio. Uh, Michael, would you mind reading a little bit for us today from your your story collection, The Coast of Good Intentions?
1: Yeah, I'll read from um, the story called Settled on the Cranberry Coast. And this was a story I was working on for a long time. Um, I started it actually in college. And couldn't get it right, and couldn't get it right, and couldn't get it right. And while I was teaching elementary school, um, it was the one story that I worked on for about eighteen months, two years. So, or so. how do
0: how do you how do you stick with a story? Like how do you find the fortitude and and to kind of it sounds like you have to dig deep to keep believing in the story itself. Like how did you know not to walk away from it?
1: Yeah, I didn't. I I I, I think I should have probably. I mean, the the smarter thing to do, the the, the perhaps the uh, the more sensible thing to do would have been to say, okay, well, I'm not going to get this one right. Uh, let me go on to the next one. But for whatever reason, um, I was, um, I kept coming back to this to this story and to this material, and it it turned out to be um, important to me in a lot of ways because it was about um, it was about being back in in Washington and around Seattle, and while I was teaching in ele- teaching elementary school in Louisiana for Teach for America, I felt very much displaced from from what I felt then very strongly <clears throat> to be. Um, to be my home territory, and I, I identify then and still do to some extent um as a kind of northwest writer but but then back then, very much as a as somebody who was trying to learn how to write a story i was I was very much trying to get at something about my native place, and so I was writing about it a lot, and this story was was quite firmly set there, and I think that 's probably what drew me back to it and It takes place in and around um, my granddad's cabin, um, as well. So, um, it had that kind of extra resonance, um, to me even then. And the, my granddad's cabin was a place that we went, um, sort of on cheapo family vacations, right? Cause that was what we could do. Yep. So settled on the Cranberry coast. And this is, this is the first story in, in this book. Um, and I'll just read the first, um, paragraph here. This, I know our lives in these towns are slowly improving. When Rosie grew up in the old reservation houses, the roads were dirt and the crab factory still wheezed along, ugly and reeking. And in early summer, the factory stayed open all night. It was the only work you could get, and the damp, dirty smell of the crab, cooking in its steel vats, blew off the ocean, all the way to Aberdeen, even farther for all I knew. I remember driving home from movies in high school, the windows open, the sweet pulp mill smell of Aberdeen, tinged with that distant, damp cardboard of Toklin's cooking crab. But when the harvest failed 15 years ago, the state jumped in with some money, and almost at once, Tokeland plumped with antique stores and curiosity shops. And the old Clapboard Hotel became a registered landmark and got a profile in Sunset. The Shoalwaters did all right, too. Three years ago, they sold their fishing rights to the Willapa, and voted to put the money into the market, mostly into technology stocks. A lot of them have managed to live off the dividends, and now they buy fishing licenses like the rest of us. Their trawlers are easily the nicest around. You'll notice them moored under the bridge in Aberdeen, the big, sleek, powerful monsters with aluminum hulls, blue-striped, the new nets, new radar. Um, So I was writing there from the point of view of a character who had lived there all his life um, and who had occupied that territory in a way that I hadn't, of course, in any way, Um, that particular place. It's about two hours from Seattle. um, But who had occupied a place that felt important to me. Um, And so trying to get at the heart of this character and to have to see um, a certain set of changes in, uh, in the landscape and in the economy and in kind of the social setup of that place through his eyes um, seemed like a way to get into that place um, through a person. And so that's finally where the story came together for me when I kind of got that guy. And once I got that guy, the, the rest of the story um, more or less fell into place.
0: I'm glad you didn't give up on him.
1: Yeah, well, so am I. Um, and, you know, he, he was modeled off off, a, off, off a, a person I knew, a man I knew, and the story um, itself was modeled off a couple people that I knew. Um, and while, um, you know, right, one, one kind of hesitates to admit that as a writer, to say, well, you know, I knew these people, I kind of wanted to write about them, because it feels as though you're shortchanging uh, whatever it is, the process of invention or the, the kind of creative... Um, again mystery that that you want to feel lives at the heart of whatever process you're engaged in um i do that a lot and i write about people i know a lot in in versions that they may or may not actually recognize and and as i've um as i've gone on writing i've i've been a little um uh more let's say um uh, open about who I'm writing about and how and why, and so what what I find as I as I continue to write as I build more stories and novels, is that um, the uh, the 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 truths of whatever matters I'm trying to get at are 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 seem to be um, truths that I already um, feel like I, I I don't quite know. Um, uh, but that, but that I know I, I, I know how people have reacted around them. Say, let's say, so that, so that um, if I want to write a story about somebody that I that um, that I know and who is who is uh, who is an actual living person, uh, <laughs> a living non-writer, let's say, um, uh, <laughs> that that I'm feeling freer in taking on those people and those stories, um, and uh, for what it's worth, uh, that that process has felt. Um, at once freeing and also kind of terrifying because you're 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 sort of letting the screens down. You're saying, "Well, you know what? I'm I I am in fact writing a little bit more from life now, and and I'm not going to make any bones about that. You know, the the truth is, of course, that one always does, one always has, and I always have uh, written about people that I've known. I've just sort of hidden it from myself or or from them um, mm. a little more actively.
0: Well, that makes me think of um, a couple of things. Um, one of them is this, um, you're saying that you're, these truths, you sort of half know them in a way, and you're writing to understand them through telling the stories. Does that mean that you feel as though you are understanding them after the stories in place? Um, Mm -hmm. Or or is it something that is still searching and other people would be able to see it more clearly in the story?
1: That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, the... You can't write a story that you already know because there's no point in writing it, of course. Um, what mm. you're trying to do is find, I suppose, what you don't know about what you think you know, maybe, uh, if that makes any sense. So, makes sense. so So you've you you, you you've got things in front of you. You have people in front of you. And maybe what you don't know is why things have happened or you maybe don't even know what you think about them. Um, mm-hmm. Don't even know about – don't even know why uh, certain things have continued to obsess you or upset you or – um uh, please you in ways that that seem strange, and um you know you can write about uh or I, i've I've been finding myself writing um s- somewhat more about um incidents from my childhood and from being uh, uh much younger and when I was in my twenties, let's say I was writing about people who were in their forties and fifties and sixties, and people would ask me, "Well, why are you writing about these characters i would I would not admit to them that in fact, I was writing about people that I knew. Um, but, and, and it seemed easier to kind of fake it perhaps and to say, well, I'm just making them up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in those cases too, I was, I was, I was also fighting my way towards a certain understanding, but, but now it feels like a a much more, um, that I know my own process is better. And that I know what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to accomplish as I'm, as I'm going about it. I don't know where I'm going often, you know, in, in, when you're actually sitting down there behind the keyboard, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think you shouldn't mostly and at the same time you know i'm I'm also sitting there in the classroom and and teaching and or trying to trying to to uh to lead other people through their either through their own fiction or through published fiction um and so uh, uh there's there is a kind of double think that you have to engage in which is to say that that yes you're reading somebody else's fiction you can really see w- where it's going and what it's what it's um why it's built the way it's built and And what it's missing and what are the marvelous things it does and you can really see that from the outside and yet when you go to your own work you you do have to preserve a certain ignorance um a a certain um willed or um accepting um non-seeing and not to try to overthink and not to try to think your way through the story but to allow the story to a certain degree to come to you to be yeah To 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 take shape in front of you or through your fingers rather than than through your brain somehow. Um,
0: You don't want you so you're not for strong arming.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You don't. Because that does not that produces um, nonfiction, Um, and that and that's that's quite a useful tool in producing nonfiction. That is to say, I think I know what I want to say, and here's how I'm going to say it. and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And which is why nonfiction for me is is quite a bit easier to write, and and I can do that. uh, uh, without much trouble, mm-hmm. um, but fiction for me takes takes still takes um, effort, and I, I still have those moments where I'm sitting there staring at the floorboards and thinking, "What is happening? What is going on? What is going?" On? You know, and and
0: and those are scary moments, but you're saying absolutely necessary. They're scary,
1: they're, but they're also productive because mm-hmm. they are those moments when I think your brain is. You know, it's pearl diving. There, it's, you're you're down there, and and somebody in, in there is holding his breath and is getting the treasure from the bottom, and is going to come up eventually. But you you know you,
0: right <laughs> you, right you, deep you, interior subconscious s- stories yeah, at work.
1: and and you know you, I find myself thinking, wow, this is <laughs> this is what I've staked it all on, right? I'm going to be a writer and a teacher, and uh, you know you stake it all on the ability to. Um, to continue this process, right, and to and to continue to have access to this kind of um, well complicated, uh, I mean necessarily unreliable and imperfect um, uh, act that that you engage in to try to write a decent story. If you have to go all the way down there, and you you know, if if you're if you're guiding it, if you're controlling it, if you're trying to control it, it 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 simply doesn't work as well. Um, and so to. Um, to it, it, it it feels risky as it should. I think it feels risky to 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 rely on that so much. Um, and I wish, you know, I find myself wishing um, that there were easier ways to do it. When I was writing the first novel, long for this world, um, I found myself really wishing that I could join the army or something, <laughs> or like be a cop. Like I I, I like I just want to go somewhere and do. I want somebody to tell me what to do. Um, please, I I I need to understand. You know, I I I, I want to come into work in the morning, and want I want to sit down and do my work, and then go and know that well, that was okay, that was fine,
0: right? Um, right.
1: Or, uh, you know, you drive the drive the cop car around, and and, and you do what you have to do.
0: Well, well, I'm glad that you're, you're not a cop, but I, I think you should watch The Wire. Oh, you are watching I The love Wire. I love The Wire. Yes, The Wire is really something the else, Wire's isn't amazing. it? Well, well, on that note, um, we're going to go to a little break, and, um, and then we'll be back with Michael Byers to, to hear more.
1: I want to tell you about my hometown.
0: It's a dusty old jewel in the South Puget Sound Where the factories churn and the timber's all cut down And life goes by slow to cold You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and um, we're here with a living writer's show with a living writer, Michael Byers. Um, and, and we were just talking a little bit about how Michael's fiction is, um, he seems to be, uh, well, you, <laughs> you're sitting here, I <laughs> here suppose I, know, I could right not talk about you in the third person. <laughs> okay. um, I maybe- do it
1: myself all the time. Michael, oh. how are you? I'm fine, thank
0: you. <laughs> signs of he madness. Looks, he l- he looks great uneasy. uneasy
1: <laughs> he said to himself in the mirror.
0: <laughs> Twitching his foot. Um okay, well, let's see. So we've got uh we've been talking about your your fiction and how um you used to tell people that um you weren't writing writing about them necessarily, but you used it, to be these, a
1: liar. Now, but now you're coming so clean.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm admitting it. Um, and, and you said you're opening up to sort of, uh, being okay with people knowing that you're writing more from, from life. And
1: part of this has to do too with, with what I'm doing in nonfiction recently, which is, which is explicitly writing about people that I knew, um, or know, um, and getting, I I think a little deeper into material about my family and so on and so forth. Um, and, um, when last uh, spring I was, I was asked to write a thing for the Washington Post Sunday, um, magazine, um. And it was about, it was supposed to be about summer and uh, a memoir piece, which meant that it had to be true. And I, I, so I asked my editor, what do you mean true? What do you mean by true? And he said, well, I mean, I mean true, like it has to actually be factual. And I I thought, oh, well, can I do that? Yeah, okay, I I could do that. And the experience for me was, was actually very um, freeing um, because one didn't have to invent. One could simply relate what had happened. Um, There's an art, of course, to it. Uh, but but the the uh, the kind of subconscious diving that one has to do for fiction was was not as necessary, or i didn 't think it was um, so I got to write about um, a summer that I spent in Alaska on a fishing barge and how um how it was important to me to have gone there because I thought I was looking for material that is i I thought as a younger I was nineteen I was in college I thought okay i 'm going to find something to write about um, and my uncles had got me this job. Um, my uncles, who were commercial fishermen, had got me this job on the on the fishing boat, and I was I was a very bad candidate. I was I was really small. I had a huge pile of hair. I had all this, all these typewriters. I kept journals and stuff. Um, but what I, I was really happy to be going up there because I got to um, I got to see all this. I I thought the point was I was going to get to go see all these, all these things happen, um, and. That was, in fact, something that, you know, I I did get. I I saw uh, all kinds of amazing things, Um, the sights of Alaska and the the kind of um, chaos of working on a fishing barge and just the beautiful, um, terrible poetry of of the fishing industry. And it seems Um, like
0: there's, like, people have hard lives there and, like, are doing hard work, and so... Maybe that seems to make it more real, in a sense, for a young writer. Absolutely, your stories are more real because your life is harder.
1: Yeah, and and I wrote so I I, I kind of wrote uh, about that intersection that as I was I was I was going up there with a the sensibility and I was hoping to come back with material, and by combining the two, I thought, well, maybe this would. Maybe this would lead me to be a, a better writer. What I, what I eventually discovered was that, well, what I think I, I, I found, and part of it was I've, I found by actually writing this essay about going up there, what I found was that, in fact, the material that I left behind in Seattle, my family and its difficulties and, uh, you know, the, the kind of pained interactions that one naturally has with your family, whoever they are, um, were actually the basis of, of, of most of the material that I would want to write about. And having written this last summer, spring last spring um, came out last summer, uh, really allowed me to s- to say, well, you know what, this is this is where I'm going to go. This is these these people and this material, this set of facts, um, turns out to be uh, really really the basis of, of who I am as a writer, and I guess sort of also as a person. Um, and so, um, writing this nonfiction allowed me to get closer, I think, to the true sources of my fiction and myself as a writer. And it also allowed me to say, well, there's all kinds of cool stuff that I like that I want to write about. So I also, <laughs> um, I, I just finished. I just had a had a piece uh, in the in in Spirit magazine. And if you don't know it, you may you you probably do know it.
0: Is it available on newsstands? No,
1: it, it it's no longer available. It's available in the pouch in the seat back <laughs> in front of you. Uh, and it's the Southwest <laughs> Airlines in-flight magazine. Thank you very much. Um, that is, yeah,
0: I'm clapping. This
1: is a captive audience. This is exactly what you want as a writer. You want you want people who are either drunk, or desperate for something to read, or or want not yeah or want <laughs> yes always good or want desperately not to talk to their neighbor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do the crossword, which somebody else has filled out wrongly in ink. And then I'm going to go through the Sky Mall because I might want that little scuba diving thing, which kind of propels you along, or I might want the the the, the inflatable um, wading pool, which looks like an octopus. Might want that, and then I'm going to read all the other stuff in the in the magazine. And so I was, I was me, and so I wrote about the old radio show, one of my great loves, the old radio TV uh, radio drama, uh, Dragnet
0: you know, Dragnet, mm, drag Jack Webb. Now, mm. see, I've
1: never seen the TV show. I understand it's kind of exactly the same as the radio show. But I grew up, well, one of the things that, that, I, that, that I loved about, um, uh, dra- well, I've always loved old radio and, and have been a fan of radio forever. And when I was, and I think this stems from when I was 10, <laughs> I got, for a birthday present, I got, oh yeah, I got a radio. Now,
0: oh. I
1: know it seems kind of sad.
0: And now you're on the radio.
1: Now here I am. And so I I used to listen. I live in Seattle, right? So West Coast time, Pacific time. I used to listen to Larry King back in the day when dude did his 5 hours. 5 hours every night. This was before his heart attack, <laughs> And and you could hear him eating just cheese on the radio.
0: How did you know it was cheese? Like you could, you could, you could just hear, hear the it cheese.
1: It affected it affected it. He was the eating the cheese. Yeah, and and peanuts and whiskey. All i probably this may be libelous. I don't know. <laughs> Larry <laughs> I'm I, kidding. Did, that's right. This was a joke. This is con- I couldn't Radio
0: hear, free Norway. I couldn't man.
1: I obviously couldn't see anything Larry cuz you were on the radio. But anyway, he did 5 hours a night. It was 2 hours of guest. The first hour was just him and a uh, guest and Larry talking and then the second hour is call in and then 3 hours of open phones, man. This was an amazing performance three hours of open open phones and he would have regulars and i think you know this i was 10 so i don't i didn't know anything at all but you would hear the guy like the guy from paramus new jersey call in and he was the numbers man now the numbers man man so he would he would call in and he would he would go through. He was insane, and he would read the baseball scores from the night before and tell you why they meant that Jesus was X and that say President Carter was you know or whatever or that or that or that Ronald Reagan was going to do such and such and so and so and that proved it.
0: The birth of a fiction well, writer. Yeah,
1: exactly. And Larry, Larry was the skeptic. He mm. you know he he wasn't buying it. Mm. No way. He was well well why don't you tell me what the scores are? Why don't you tell me what the scores are going to be tonight? Tell me what the scores are. Gonna, but,
0: that was a good impression. Yeah, the numbers but man would not. Fine.
1: He simply, he, he, he refused. He didn't answer the question. He just went on. He was crazy. So there's the numbers man. I love the numbers man. And then there were all these stories that, that Larry would tell him because, you know, you couldn't like download them or anything. You had to wait for Larry to tell them. And he wouldn't tell them every night or even every week. It would be like every few months he would tell the Gil Mapo story.
0: Oh, it was the same story. Yeah.
1: He would tell a story from his childhood about, you know, what he'd done and who Gil Moppo was and... And they would be almost exactly the same every time, but not quite, because he would actually be literally telling them on, on the air. And one, you know, anticipated, waited. You, you, you kind of knew Larry's real name, which I now forget, but it was, you know. That's not it, it his wasn't, real name. No, it wasn't Larry King. It was, you know, something much less impressive. <laughs> <laughs> his first name was Larry. Um, and listening to him out on the so I, I would listen and, and it would get to be one in the morning and two in the morning I'm, know, I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old and I'm listening to this and this is my radio the, you know I didn't do music music was never the thing I, I don't know I, your parents didn't make you go to sleep? well they did but you know then, then <laughs> there's the whole th- now this is another story right? <laughs> no they didn't they didn't know because I was way up in my room and nobody could hear me or find me your attic room your garret my attic room that's right where I was with the cats and with Larry King. And that was just, that was that was us. We were That's there. the way it was. That was it. And um, so I, I listened to Larry King instead of listening to music until I got into high school and I thought, oh, wait a second. People are talking about music. That's amazing. I don't know what music is. I, you know, because I, I, for whatever reason, it just... I, ne- I I missed it. It hadn't occurred to you. I guess so. I just, I missed it. I missed, I, I I whatever cue there was to, here's the cool station to listen to, I just, I didn't get the memo. So.
0: Maybe your parents didn't listen to music either. Like any.
1: Yeah. You know, they listened to talk radio sometimes, but hmm. it was more like NPR. You know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the, it wasn't Larry King.
0: It wasn't the hardcore stuff that you were into. Yeah, no,
1: <laughs> so. So but in high school I I, I got turned on to KVI five seventy, which is now one of these horrible right wing radio stations. Yeah, it got taken over. Maybe it isn't anymore, I don't know. But it was uh most recently than I know of that was its most recent incarnation. But back in the day, it was um <laughs> it was oldies, but I didn't I didn't really know they were oldies. So this is where Dusty Springfield comes from. I knew I'd heard that song before somewhere I know and to me it was brand new music mm. right and to to me to me listening listening to motown and the beach boys in seattle in 1984 that was you know somehow i made a connection with this music i don't know and so i would i would bring people people i would try to bring you know like if i ever had friends over let alone a girlfriend, goodness gracious. I would, you know, I'd, I'd put on some music and I'd say, listen to this. And I'd put on, you know, uh, good vibrations, not not meaning vibrations, just meaning listen to Brian Wilson. Like, isn't this, or I'd put on Smokey, I had Smokey Robinson, I had that two di, two C, two CDs, please. I had the two record thing. Mm-hmm. And um, all the early, and Martha Reeves, and the, all that old stuff. And so that's when I, so you that, had that a... was my karaoke. That was really where I was karaokeing there in my room with uh uh earl gray the cat and and looking out on on my yard um that was my beginning as a singer
0: that's wonderful and that's where i started
1: and 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 uh but larry larry king was my first kind of storyteller and and you had a radio
0: show too though probably because of Larry king you Barry went on king. the radio Well, my friend
1: kevin weeks and i we started uh we started a little company and for a while we wanted to do um tv and then we thought well maybe that's not quite our bag and so we went over to uh, the college radio station there this is in high school now um in seattle kcmu i think it's now defunct and oh, we had we had a little kxp oh okay so wait it right. lives on it lives on without
0: you but hard to believe how
1: does it and we, we, you know, we do little skits, we had a skit show, and so we had my one. I, I, I remember, um, a non sequitur man, was well, Then this, this is before the comic strip non sequitur, but, but this was non sequitur man. So, and he was a he was a superhero, and so, somebody would say, "Help, help, non sequitur man! I'm caught in the well." And non sequitur man would say, "I'm gonna get a parking ticket." And that was that was sort of non sequitur, man. That's what he would do. Th- and it was that funny then too.
0: That's riveting, though. Yeah, it no, really is. It is. And we.
1: <laughs> so so this is how this is this is the other way I spent my my early days of high school is writing radio skits. And I guess you know maybe if I were to try to push it, I would say, well, I was I was that was dialogue, it was voice and stuff. And oh,
0: I don't even. That's, I no, think m- that that's just m- you're m- not even pushing it. I maybe just think so. that's. I think yeah. Maybe so. It it
1: was, it was voice. And, and, and I think actually, you know, if I, if I, if I'm honest about it, I would say that, yeah, listening to, listening to those guys, listening to the numbers man and, um, all the other people from around the country calling to Larry King and tell their stories and make their claims and talk, talk, you know, out of the insane selfness that they all had to call a national radio show and say, Larry, I got to tell you this. Um, amplified or worked with something in my nature which was alwe- already kind of a writer um, and suggested that there are big stories out there and there are stories that everybody has um, and it I suppose what one does as a writer is learns to find your own material um, and, and I feel as though I'm, I'm using those skills that, that you get early and, and you make your way back eventually I think to the material that you started with.
0: Michael Byers? You've been wonderful. Will you come back perhaps another time? Thank you, T. Time? I will
1: if only if I'm still living.
0: <laughs> well, then you'd qualify, surely, for the Living Writers Show. Thank you, Michael. Um, this is T. Hetzel saying uh, see you or, well, see you next Wednesday. Same time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, T.